You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Mickey Ryan is co-chair of the board of the National Conservation Group Great Old Broads for Wilderness. Co-founder of the CV chapter of Great Old Broads, it covers the region of Northwest Oregon and Southwest Washington. Mickey is a lawyer, and in her career, she is focused on social justice work, representing people without housing and low-income tenants in their housing and related legal needs. Amy Stewart worked for the last 40 years as a fish and wildlife biologist and spent three of those four decades with the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Most of her work was as a fish biologist in central and eastern Oregon with experiences including fish habitat and population management and restoration, hydropower project relicensing and dam removals, and most recently as the Deschutes Basin Manager. Julie Weichel has spent 45 years as a large animal veterinarian including academia, private practice, and regulatory medicine. This gave Julie a big window on the American West. All of those observations led inevitably to a realization that much of our natural world is in jeopardy and needs more thoughtful and a longer view. If I were to put three people in a room and have them tasked with removing dams on the Lower Snake River, I would look no further than these three. In fact, if I were a dam on the Lower Snake River, I'd be shaking in my foundation right at this moment. Today, the case will be made emphatically and conclusively against these dams, why they should be removed, and why the war on salmon in this part of the world needs to end. We're members of the Great Old Broads for Wilderness, which is a national conservation group dedicated to protection of America's wilderness and wild lands and keeping them public. We're here today to talk about the Lower Snake River dams and restoring the wild Snake River salmon and steelhead. Although we're talking about the Lower Snake River dams today, we're also talking about the entire Columbia River Basin that covers large parts of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and parts of Montana, even goes into Canada. The Columbia River is the fourth largest river in the North American continent and covers 200, the basin covers 258,000 acres. Much of that is public land. The Columbia River and its primary tributary, which is the Snake, flows 1,200 miles through seven states and a Canadian province. Our concern is one of the keystone species of that area, which is the salmon. And Amy will talk a lot about the salmon, but hundreds of species of fish and wildlife depend on, on those salmon, including the close contact that both the the native people of the Northwest and all of us immigrants uh, rely on and love. We became involved with, uh, I, I say we, we kind of came to this fight late, although I, I think we're, we're doing a good job about two and a half years ago um, when I got involved in it. Now, Julie and Amy have been involved in this in various forums for decades and they're gonna describe that. But Julie was very important in convincing us to get involved in this action and that now was the time. 
And uh, I'll have her talk more about that. But what had happened was an Idaho congressman had uh, actually mentioned the fact that, you know, breaching the dams was something to talk about, which it had always been something that no one, uh, at least on the other side of the aisle, would talk about at all. And at the same time, there was an outstanding documentary, Dam to Extinction, released. And that got people more excited about this issue that focused on um, particularly the orca and uh, its link to the salmon and dependence on the salmon. And we'll have links to how you can access that at the end um, of our information. So um, we got involved and started gearing up on various uh, actions, including getting involved in environmental impact, uh, statement that just came out um, and some other actions. But I think maybe uh, perhaps Amy and Julie should talk and then I can finish up with kind of what's going on with litigation and um, other actions that we're taking right now. Does that sound okay, Amy? Yeah, that works. Great. Okay, well, thanks for having us on, Jack. This is, this is really good. Um, I have a somewhat personal history. I was actually a barge rider for the Army Corps of Engineers back in the Pleistocene in 1982, when I was a very young and naive biologist. And now I'm, you know, here it is almost 40 years later, and I'm one of the people that's helping to say, hey, it's time for those lower Snake River dams to go. I'm going to start out with three really important things. One is the only solution for survival for salmon and steelhead in a changing climate is a free-flowing Snake River and connectivity to the Salmon River. Secondly, the removal of the four lower Snake River dams ensures a two to three-fold increase in what we call small to adult returns. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. The short word for small to adult ret return is an SAR. And lastly, that we cannot squander the genetics of our wild fish by failing to save them. Because the wild genetics of native fish, it preserves the option to restore the future of the species. Without wild fish, the monoculture of huge numbers of hatchery fish like big agriculture, allows the loss of biodiversity and sustainability in the face of climate change. And of course, people all know the livability and sustainability of our planet and the future of all the species depends on restoring native species, especially those that our public cares about. Those are our kind of iconic species like salmon and steelhead. So I'm gonna address three topics pretty quickly, dams, the fish, and climate change. And first of all, dams fragment cord connective quarters, our rivers, and they block essential habitats that migratory fish need to complete their life cycle. Dams alter flows, the water quality, the nutrients and sediment. And as an example, the lower Snake River dams, they cause chronic lethal temperatures, both in the lower Snake River and the Columbia, above 68 degrees Fahrenheit. And that 68 degrees Fahrenheit is a marker because it impedes migrations and it causes chronic and lethal mortality. And that's been happening from mid-June to mid-September in some years. When we start removing dams, we can restore biodiversity and fish runs. And really good examples are the Penobscot and the Kennebec in Maine, and the Hood River, White Salmon River, and Elwha in the Pacific Northwest. Since the early 1900s, almost 1,600 dams have been removed, and largely because they're either below-cost dams that are privately owned and they pay, people can't afford to take care of them anymore or dam safety. 
And really good examples of this in the last couple of years are the Oroville Dam in California in 2019, where they had to move large numbers of people, thousands of people, to avoid loss of life. And then even in Michigan this year, we had two dam failures that also had the risk of, of, of hurting or killing people. So on the Columbia River, all the techno fixes of barging and hatchery fishes, spilling water at dams, improving juvenile bypass systems have failed to restore a single native listed species. So now I'm gonna talk about the fish. Salmon, Chinook salmon, sockeye and steelhead were listed in the early 1990s. Sadly, coho had already gone extinct in the mid 1980s. Our spring and summer and fall Chinook, sockeye salmon and steelhead the wild fish are less than 1% of their historic numbers. As an example, our historic spring summer Chinook used to be 1 million fish. In 2019, there were 6,130. Let me repeat that, 1 million fish down to 6,130 fish. So our wild fish are heading spiraling towards extinction and our runs are almost entirely dependent on hatchery fish. This loss of biodiversity and the decline in multiple life histories that characterize our native species, those are the things that would have ensured the survival in our, claiming, in our changing climate, and we're losing those. With the monoculture of hatchery fish, it's slowly destroying our wild genetics because as with each generation, as hatchery fish go and spawn with wild fish. As an example, also our juvenile passage survival system from natal stream to the ocean. So if you take a snake river fish or salmon river fish and it goes all the way to the ocean, that juvenile fish has about a 15% chance of surviving after going through eight dams. Even though the Army Corps of Engineers claims they have 95% survival, you multiply 95% out eight times, plus turbine strike, plus the hydraulic pressures, plus predators, plus latent estuary mortality, and you result in about that 15% survival rate. Now you gotta get that adult back up after spending three to four years in the ocean. So what the eight dams have done, they've also delayed juvenile migration from less than one week in historic times to four weeks. So the fish have to swim harder, swim longer through a gauntlet of predators and dams to make it downstream. And the same is true for adults going upstream. So I mentioned SARs, and that means for every 100 outmigrating out juveniles, it's the number of adults that return. And the minimum viability for fish in the Columbia in the Snake River is two to 6%. Fish from the Snake River are less, their SAR is less than 1%. So what you have is every dam that increases their, or increases their loss of survivability. Two dams, we generally have a six to, seven, six to 7% SAR. By the time, and each succeeding dams, that number drops. And when you get over eight dams, it's less than 1%. They're not replacing themselves. So the last thing I'm gonna address is climate change. In 2015 was a very hot, dry year, and it's a window into our future. The lethal temperatures in the Columbia and the Lower Snake River for three months killed 96% of 250,000 returning wild and hatchery sockeye salmon. It's brought our sockeye to the brink of extinction. And why that's important is access to Idaho, is those high elevation ha habitats in Idaho and Northeast Oregon and even Southeast Washington Many of them are largely pristine habitats in wilderness areas and remote canyons. There's millions of acres that have been set aside in wilderness that provide that, those cold waters. For example, the Salmon River alone has over 600 miles of tributaries and the main stem salmon that provide suitable and usable, very usable spawning habitat. 
those high elevation habitats are essential for the future survival of salmon and steelhead when lower elevation habitats may become unusable or unsustainable with climate change. So I'll get back to that idea is that the only solution for survival in a changing climate is a free flowing snake river and connectivity to the salmon river. And as each dam slows the water, eats the water, it compromises the future of our wild fish. Now I'll turn it over to Julie. Thank you. And as always, Amy's story is the big story. The fish are the big story. And I would share with our audience that in the late 60s and 70s, I actually testified against some of the lower Snake River dams because I lived in Lewiston, Idaho. But at that time I was a whitewater kayaker and we were talking about, oh, don't drown out our favorite little place to play in the river. And no one, at those hearings, no one mentioned the big story, which is the fish. So even though the fish is the big story and Amy tells the story so well, I'm gonna focus on what we hope, what we think may be the real thing that finally gets those four relatively useless lower Snake River dams out of the way of fish. We're not talking about other dams on the Columbia River system at this time. Um, they have better economics, but the four lower Snake River dams are a business disaster. Today, the BPA is in debt $15 billion. That's with a B. And that's kind of the definition of bad business in general. Now the BPA used to have fiscal reserves. They had $917 million back in 2008. Today, they have $5 million. Get a load of that, $917 million in 2008, and today their fiscal reserves are 5 million. BPA has a annual budget of about $3 million and $3 billion, sorry, $3 billion annual budget. And 24% of that budget is dedicated to trying to restore and mitigate wildlife issues, including the salmon. And they have not one shred of evidence for all that expenditure of any kind of success. Now the Snake River power system actually generates a surplus of power, about 40% of their generation. And of course that varies depending on the water flow uh, from year to year, but they do produce a surplus. And back when they could sell power to California for about $60 a megawatt hour, it was a nice return. Today, retail power sold to California is about $20 per megawatt hour, which is well below the cost of production for most of the dams in the Pacific Northwest. Now, BPA won't make individual dam economics available to us, but we know that the Grand Coulee is pretty efficient in terms of how much power it generates relative to cost. Whereas the four lower Snake River dams are much less efficient. In fact, the entire production of power from the four lower Snake River dams is confined to the spring runoff 
which is actually when the Northwest grid has a surplus of power. BPA literally has to pay their wind power sources and their solar power sources to shut down during these high water flows. And although you will see in editorials that supposedly the four lower Snake River dams generate 4,000 megawatt hours of power, that's their theoretical capability. For the past 17 years, their annual production hasn't been anywhere near 4,000 megawatts of power. It's actually somewhere between 700 and 900 megawatts of power. So there's a lot of kind of funny numbers uh, if you don't dig fairly deep. As a whole, the four lower Snake River dams generate 3.3%, even assuming BPA's figure of 4,000 megawatt hours, 3.3%. And that has more than been made up with energy efficient majors, measures that have been undertaken recently. So back to the hard economic realities. A large part of the power produced by the Bonneville Power Administration is sold to PUDs, public utilities districts, under contract. And right now those contracts average about $36 per megawatt hour. But most of these contracts end in 2028 and BPA is under obligation to get proposed new contracts out into the PUDs, to the PUDs, by 2024. That's just around the corner. And today, BPA is writing wind contracts for power at a 62% decrease since 2011, and solar contracts at a 76% decrease from 2010 prices, and they can currently write contracts for wind and solar at 21 to $30 per megawatt hour. And yet they're trying to sell power to PUDs at $36 per megawatt hour. Well, PUDs aren't gonna put up with that. They're gonna go and write their own contracts and find other sources of power because there's much cheaper power to be had out there. So back in 2011, when BPA kind of saw that they were in real trouble financially, although it was obvious before that, they started increasing prices to the PUD. And I happened to live um, in one of those PUDs down in Eastern Oregon in Harney County. And I have watched my power bill literally reflect this very number. The price of power has gone up to the PUDs who then pass it on to their customers 30% since 2011. This can't go on, it just can't. There's cheaper power to be had. These dams, the four lower Snake River dams, and we're specifically talking about Ice Harbor Dam, closest to the Tri-Cities in Washington, Lower Monumental Dam, Little Goose Dam, and Lower Granite Dam. These were put in in the late 60s and early 70s. And at that time, the turbines that were installed had an expected life of 35 to 45 years. Today, nine of those turbines are over 50 years old 
and 12 of them are over 40 years old. And the cost, the current cost of replacing a turbine based on some recent turbines replaced at McNary Dam is $42 million per turbine. One of the interesting things is BPA has written up their infrastructure budget for 2016 to 2030, and there is not one dime in that budget dedicated to replacing the turbines of the four lower Snake River dams. It's almost as if BPA knows they're not going to replace those turbines. They're not going to fix that aging infrastructure. I want to address the issue of barging because when I lived in Lewiston, Idaho in the late 60s and early 70s, we were told front page of the Lewiston Morning Tribune week after week was the great job boost and economic boost that would be brought to the area when Lewiston, Idaho became a seaport. Well, the interesting fact today is that of 17,590 transfer economic units, which there's two of those on each barge, there were 17,590 transfer economic units in 2000 and in 2017, there were zero. In other words, there is no more container transport going on on the Snake River. Well, what about wheat? So back in 1995, a million ton of wheat shipped out of Lewiston, Idaho. In 2019, that total volume of wheat had decreased by 35%. And every bit of the current wheat shipped out of Lewiston, Idaho goes out of a private port, not the public one. How is this? Well, the wheat's getting loaded on trains and it's going out on trains these days. So what's another statistic that shows us how drastic this is? In 1994, 1,200 barges went through Lower Granite Dam on their way down to the lower Columbia River. In 2017, only 314 barges passed through the locks. That's a decrease of 75%. So what about those jobs that Central Idaho was promised? Well, Idaho's job growth from 1993 to 2018 increased 66%. But region two, which is that central part of Idaho, including Lewiston, is up 13% over that 20 year lifespan. This is the lowest economic growth in all of Idaho and the area has not even recovered to its economic levels of 2008. In other words, they are still experiencing the 2008 recession. And just to put a little cap on all of these numbers because numbers aren't nearly as magnificent as fish, but they may be the nail in the coffin for the Lower Snake River dams. Every single barge that goes down the Lower Snake River has a $30,000 tax subsidy on top. In other words, American taxpayers are paying $30,000 above and beyond what the shipper is paying just to move that barge over a section of river that is destroying 
one of the most magnificent, some of the most magnificent species on our planet. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. Yeah, I was going to briefly talk about the litigation and political situation just to kind of round it up on what people can do. And I just have to say I'm a lawyer, so I believe in the power of litigation, but this is a situation that makes someone lose faith faith in mm. that. And we'll provide for the law geeks a lot of links to lit this piece of litigation under the Endangered Species Act that is going on now. It's been going on for 20 years in the courts. And uh, the broads are involved in that just recently in commenting on the latest uh, environmental impacts uh, statement, but the state of Oregon, the Nez Perce tribe, and then about 20 conservation groups. Uh, one of them, the first named plaintiff is the National Wildlife Federation, um, have filed this court case 20 years ago as you can see, I mean, it's a, it should be a no brainer, right? Under the Endangered Species Act. Um, so they, they, uh, the Snake River sockeye were listed in 91 as endangered. And in 92, the Snake River Fall Chinook joined as threatened. Fast forward to 2016, and we're looking at, uh, I think it's 13 species in the, uh, in the region have been um, listed as endangered or threatened. So it's, you know, you can see it's just, just continuing. So they, uh, during this time, the government has, of course, fought all the way. Um, the federal court has rejected five biological opinions, which is, you know, the people who are supposed to tell us uh, the, uh, what's going on and how to fix it. Um, oh, I have, I have 2016, 13 species or populations of Columbia or Snake River salmonoids, either endangered or threatened. Um, so in 2016, the latest, you know, of this after 15 years of litigation, the federal court ordered the NOAA fisheries to file another biop or biological opinion in 2018 and ordered an EIS. And that was prepared last year. And um, because it was so bad, again, we'll be going back or Oregon and, and everybody else will be going back to court. Um, the interesting thing about this EIS was that for the first time, the Army Corps, the Bureau of Reclamation and Bonneville Power, which are the entities that wrote it, um, said really that the breaching the dams was the real way to help the fish. But they decided that there were other balancing interests um, that, uh, so they did not recommend a breach. Um, so that's where, where things are in that case. And again, the plaintiffs are going back saying this, this decision is, is wrong and bad. But, you know, you just think after that many years, how, <laughs> you know, what is the court going to do? And really, you know, we're, we're, as Amy said, we're out of time. We can't, you know, mess around. Um, the other thing that broads are, have just been approved as interveners in a case were represented by advocates for the West with some other 
um, Idaho uh, groups, and we're looking at the trying to dive into this economics and, and make it more transparent as to what's going on here and how rates are being sent, set and, and how the money's being spent. Um, so that's something on the horizon. There is also a, um, we're, we're not hopeful at all here, a four governors group that's been, um, I, I don't know if they're meeting yet, they're supposed to be seeking a solution, but you know, it's like, for 20 years, as with many of these things, people meet and meet and they just don't get anything done. So some of the things we're asking people to do, because one of the interesting things that um, uh, the, the federal government said, the agency said in the um, uh, record of decision was that um, Congress really had to decide about these dams and the breaching and that it wasn't their decision. So we're, we are doing it and we're urging everyone to not only educate their Congress people on the loss of the salmon and the ecosystem, but also educate them so they're ready to say no, because we see BPA coming for a bailout at some point to Congress. Um, if you're in one of the four states, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana, um, please write your governor um, because they are on this, this uh, four governor group. And then of course, uh, we'll be sending information, support the groups that are fighting this in court. There's again, about 20 um, of our nonprofit conservation groups. Earth Justice is the, is the primary plaintiff's attorney and it's important to support those. So, and I'll let uh, Amy and Julie add whatever they'd like to that. I would, I would just add that if you can join a conservation group or donate to a conservation group, you know, or write letters to the editor or get involved. Um, we try to sponsor different actions, whether uh, for the Great Old Broads, we had a broad walk. Um, we're talking about a kayak protest. There's been some annual protests. Um, it's, it's kind of fun to go out and kayak and protest. So there's other options that people can do to get involved. But the most basic, if you don't wanna leave your computer in your home is donate. If Bonneville Power Administration were a private enterprise, they would take down those four lower Snake River dams simply for good solid business management reasons. No private company would keep arguing for those dams that are so unproductive and literally making them spend 24% of their budget to mitigate something and show nothing for the expenditure. The second point that we, we would hope the audience would realize, time really is of the essence. And Amy said this, but I just, wanna, I just want to reiterate it. The wild genetics that are available in central Idaho are strained and they can't hold on forever, but they do exist. And if we could restore runs into that country, those genetics would be powerful in terms of helping deal with climate change. Do you feel like you're making progress in, in outreach and, you know, the dams are ridiculous. You've made that case perfectly. They, they don't make any business sense. They're destroying habitat and, uh, or they have already, and uh, endangering species. So, 
um, more people, as more people are learning about this stuff, do you feel like it's going to get easier? You're talking about a 20 year thing. Uh, I interviewed Tim McNulty about the Elwha and, and that was a super, super long journey too, of litigation, of massive coalition building of just a really huge onslaught until the dam was finally down. Do you sense that this is going to ever get any faster, that we're going to pick up momentum? Maybe that maybe you guys have picked up momentum from successful projects like the Elwha and others that the few others that have uh, that are really sizable dams that have been taken out finally. I think it's important for people to realize because it's kind of a new idea to a good size of the audience, even the sophisticated audience that this podcast has, dams by their very definition are the seed of their own demise because they, they slow down water and silt backs up. Every dam that's ever been built is already killing itself. Um, and, and that's an important consideration. In other words, dams are a short term kind of solution to anything if indeed they are a solution. And so we need to look at dams differently than maybe we have historically. And of course, we all know that a lot of the dams that got built out west literally got built because they provided jobs. No one really looked at the environmental consequences of some of these great dams. And I would add that I am hopeful in regards to your question that we'll look at dams more critically in the future. And a good example of that is the proposal that's been on the books for decades to take out the Klamath dams. And now, even though it's been pushed back, the first dams are supposed to come out starting in 2022. And that will be an even bigger project than the Elwha was. But the hope is that by taking out those dams, it'll be essentially the same thing, restoring salmon and steelhead to the whole upper basin of the Klamath and restoring the free flowing nature of the rivers. So I'm, I'm hopeful that at least with people who care about rivers, care about fish and the ecological integrity of those aquatic ecosystems that we'll see more dam removals in the future. The Broads again are working on uh, an issue on the Chehalis River, which is a you know largely unknown river system in central, well, Western Washington. Um, they're, they're building a structure, they won't call it a dam, although it's a dam. They, uh, they wanna build it to protect the highway and do various things. And there's quite a fight. And in fact, the governor uh, said, hey, slow this down, we gotta look at this and we're not making any hasty decisions. And there are a ton of people working on this. And I think it's largely, you know, one of those things that unfortunately we, we learn late and then, but, but we do learn. And I think that people are really looking at every alternative, um, which there are many alternatives on the Chehalis and I'm, I'm betting it doesn't get built. And so I think that's, that's something we can look at in terms of the tide changing. There are jobs in taking out dams, I would imagine. There are jobs that would come back that were taken out because of the dams. So it's not a zero-sum situation that we're talking about, right? We're not talking about eliminating something or, or being anti-worker and anti-jobs at all, because I see just as many jobs coming up 
when you take out dams as there were putting them in and then operating barges. Is that fair? It, that's very fair. Um, Idaho and the Lower Snake River dams is a really good example because their their small rural economies have de- have been depending on guiding outfitters and the whole fishing industry to support their jobs. Those communities are slowly dying because the steelhead and salmon are coming back. The last two or three years, they haven't been able to have significant salmon and steelhead fisheries. So without those fisheries, there's no economy. So it's not just the dam removal, it's also restoring the fisheries that depended on them. And they don't even have to be retention fisheries that can be catch and release fisheries. I would share with you that Eco Northwest, which is a consulting firm, did an economic analysis of the removal of the four lower Snake River dams. And when they figured in the economic upside of removing the dams, they found a $7 to one return on investment by taking the dams out. So when you do include, as Jack mentioned, those alternative things that happen restoring and, and as Amy mentioned, these local businesses finally can thrive again. It, it's a seven to one return on investment. Who wouldn't go for that? You guys see any benefits coming your, to your fight uh, with these dams in terms of restoration and rewilding uh, and support that you might foresee coming from the new administration? We're all hopeful because it can't be as bad as it has been, but we're, we're trying to stay um, literally light on our feet to see mm-hmm. where to put forth our best efforts with the new administration. And it, it just has to be better. <laughs> yeah, one of the problems is how um, folks like BPA spin hydropower that is renewable and it is, you know, no impact and all this kind of stuff. So I think we have to keep pounding on, hey folks, we are gonna lose the the major ecosystem of the Pacific Northwest when we lose the salmon. If, you know, we're we're confident it will come back if we can do this soon enough, but it's ruining it. It's ruining what the Northwest is known for in our ecosystem. And we're simply proposing to take out the four lower Snake River dams, not the Columbia main stem dams. And that will make the difference. I mean, a two to three fold increase in fish returning, that'll make it sustainable. They'll survive. That's a big deal. Mickey, Julie, Amy, thank you so much. This was really, really great. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.